attended one talk and he said the, the earth has provided uh, with all the elements of the predictable just go use them and that was that was like a funny comment that he did and but it kind of got stuck in my head somehow Pep Cornelia has done some of his best work when he's thinking outside the box one of the most important tools in his work as a catalysis specialist is his curiosity with it he and his team have discovered more than they could have ever expected. In this season two episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life, we speak with another member of Chemical and Engineering News' 2020 Talents at 12 about their work and trends in their field. I'm your host, Dr. Paolo Rayuca from Thermo Fisher Scientific. We began by asking Dr. Cornelia about how organic synthesis kick-started his scientific career. Yeah, so organic synthesis was the 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 subjects at at the bachelor's level that I was, let's say, most good at because I really liked it to 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 study. I I was not bored studying that stuff, disconnecting molecules, uh, uh, connecting things together by really beautiful arrangements and uh, rearrangements and stuff like that. Right? Um, it was very intuitive to me, and and it was not very difficult. But obviously, at the bachelor's level, this gets harder and harder, right? Um, and and at the end, uh, my my whole theme has been organic synthesis, but never like hardcore or synthetic organic chemistry, like total synthesis or you know or stuff like that. It was then I discovered catalysis, and catalysis opened my eyes in the sense that it's like okay, I can discover new ways of making molecules, not not just making the molecule at the end by whatever means, but I can probably find a way that nobody has found before to connect two different entities or three or four or whatever. And that was really kind of eye opening. And then I always pursued the, down the path of cat- homogeneous catalysis and that it brings a lot of areas together right organic synthesis organometallic chemistry a little bit of inorganic chemistry coordination uh and and we fall under the umbrella of organic synthesis but we are a mixture of <laughs> a little bit of everything and um there's another one there's another one thing you said that i i i really liked is um you're liking catalysis because it, it gives you the potential to do things in a different way, or or, or, or do or to do new things that no one no one else has been able to do before. Can you can you comment a bit a bit more about that? So so is is the, this definition that you just gave is the most difficult one to come up with something that nobody ever has done before is very very complicated. Um, what you can come up with is new ways of doing things that resemble something like by by reading a lot by reading a lot and realizing that. This uh, the reactivity of these elements and these systems could give you you know interesting um, interesting reactivity for I don't know the breaking it breaks a, a bond you know that that you are very interested in and then all of a sudden you start thinking okay if this breaks then maybe I can design a way you know a catalyst that could break this bond and then engage in this other molecule and then the for the final product is something that maybe nobody has done before it's not that we are trying to invent completely new reactivity or new rules for chemistry but what it gives you the opportunity is uh is, is to, to to draw yourself to molecules that you would never think that that, no, that nobody has probably put together right and then you go wouldn't it be nice to connect to disconnect here and disconnect here and put this together and, and catalysis is a very powerful tool to do that. And I think that is what, what really, really allows you to, it's a really enabling uh, technique, you know. The... A lot of the catalysis people I, I've met in, in my life, they, they were really 
in love with their metal systems, right? You, know, <laughs> you typically find the Palladium people or the, you know, the, right, or yeah. the Morutinian people, uh, and you know they immerse themselves in the in, in the chemistry of the metals, you know, in, the, in all these these uh, organometallic chemistry aspects around it, and then you somehow produce a number of studies that are looking into different aspects of the same sort of chemical species uh, in the origin. Here you're telling a different story, right? You're telling a combination of uh, so sorting out, of fixing a, um, a, a, a synthetic chemical problem. And this approach is a little, is, is a high risk, high reward, I guess. Being from the catalysis and not from the organometallic part, I think what it brings a little bit is, a, is to be naive. And, and I don't know if, uh, how to say it, but like if you know a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of your system, that means that you know a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of limitations. And therefore that is going to prevent you probably from designing things that you already are biased by the fact that they will not work. Right. And therefore, what happens is that then you will never set up that reaction that might give you the surprise. And this is what sometimes uh, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for advocating for knowing little. But what I'm saying is that sometimes jumping in an area, certainly, for example, for us in the bismuth area, we had no idea about bismuth before. But then at the end, I think that the, the original idea that was completely naive, if you had talked to somebody that was a truly organometallic, that dedicated their time and life to these mechanics probably didn't even think about it or you know like discarded it for some other reasons and so on and this plus of naivety is quite is quite interesting if you know a lot then the difference for you between a methyl or an ethyl is is like the most important thing in the world whereas if you zoom out the difference between the methyl and the ethyl most likely there's going to be very little influence right and 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 therefore, like uh, having a, an overall big picture is, is very is, is a difficult thing, I think. This comes across very, very clearly from your studies, in my view. There's an in interesting story. So let, let's speak a bit more about your bismuth. Can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, what it is, how it works, uh, what why is important, what you learn on your journey about it? This comes back to when I was a postdoc in Catalonia that I had a, the, I attended one talk from uh, Matthias Trias, uh, an inorganic professor at the TU Berlin, and and he said the the Earth has provided uh, with all the elements of the periodic system, uh, the periodic table. Just go use them, and that was that was like a funny comment that he did, and but it kind of got stuck in my head somehow. And then I went to another a GRC conference in the U.S. when I was uh, during this time also a lot the same time and and there uh, I remember uh, Professor Silas Cook from Indiana University uh, he was presenting and he was talking about sustainable catalysis and he had like a picture of the elements that were considered sustainable sustainable elements and he had iron he had cobalt manganese chromium two uh, copper and bismuth. And when he put bismuth there, I was like, no, 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 sorry, but I think he, there is a mistake. It must be like a B board for an end, right, of nickel or something. And I went over to him after the talk and I said, like, dude, you put here like bismuth. He's like, yeah, yeah, check it out. I mean, it's like really benign. And so uh, there is a lot of reports with bismuth trichloride, bismuth triflate, and it's considered to be like non-toxic and so on. I was like, well, 
And that was like, I think the moment where I got interested in these guys, like, okay, let's look into this. Uh, and, and I started reading and reading and reading a bit more. And then I found what I told you, right? These are stoichiometric experiments where people was using bismuth five that would go to bismuth three and so on, but the stoichiometric. And then it's like, all right, we just need to bring back the three to five and we close the catalytic cycle, right? And we would be able to develop that. And there were some hints that this would be possible. And then, when I got the opportunity to come to the Max Planck, okay, it's like this is the place to do it because it's about it's all about fundamental chemistry, fundamental reactivity, and catalysis. The Max Planck Institutes are for fundamental science, and if there is application, great. But it's just to study fundamental research. So I said, okay, I'm going to propose this bismuth, and and here is where it started. Right, uh, we started working on this. I hired a very talented PhD, then a postdoc, super talented postdoc came in, and they both. They did a great job, and now we have I don't know six, seven people working on just bismuth catalysis. And, and and it works, right? It works. You you managed to close that catalytic cycle. Yeah, exactly. So the yeah the, the the so it could have been a dramatic failure, right? I mean, let's face it. But I I, I there was evidence that that could be possible, and then we applied it in in two different manifolds. The, what it, what we call the low valent manifold, which is the one three redox cycle. And we use the 3.5 redox cycle, which is the one that we've been able to do with aryl, uh, aryl triflates or aryl fluorides and so on, um, which is the most recent work, I guess. So I'm going to give you a challenge now because it's very difficult to do without any sort of visual aid, right? Uh, but you started from the from the bismuth 3 to 5 kind of um, uh, redox couple. And then you, you had this idea of, of closing the cycle. How, how do you go along with closing the cycle? What, how, how does your system work? This is another thing that com that differentiates from transition metal catalysis where you just mix ligands and, and catalysts and you can serendipitously like find the right combination at some point if you screen enough this is completely different and <laughs> because you need that you cannot just put ligands that work for transition metals uh, into bismuth and pretend that they are going to coordinate in the same way that they are going to do the same thing that you want and so on so what we had to do is to really dissect everything and go to the basics. Okay, we want to do a catalytic cycle that is going to have three fundamental steps. And these fundamental steps are all stoichiometric, right? By definition, right? So we're going to analyze every individual step and make it quantitative. If we make every step quantitative, like if we can prove that all the these steps are working, then maybe we have a chance. And that is what how we started, how we approached this. So we start from a bismuth three, and what we needed is to introduce an aryl group. So we investigated a transmetallation event into bismuth three that was not known. Then after that, we needed to find an oxidant to bring the bismuth three, which the lone pair is very contracted because it's the last group in the group 15 and it's the last stable element in the periodic table. So it's like a huge cationic core. So we came up with this fluoropyridinium that just oxidizes the bismuth three to bismuth five fluoride. And then the reductive elimination had to happen, which reduct all these rules change. We call it oxidative addition, reductive elimination. But when you move from transition metals to main group elements, the geometries, the symmetries, and the orbitals that you play with, they are not D, they are P and S. So everything changes. You have to relearn everything. And that's why we had to go to the very fundamental steps and design the proper ligands. It's, it's, it's quite an interesting fact that, that we can do this redox catalysis, the 3-5, right, with an element that is not a transition metal. That is, a, that is I think, the fundamental cool thing. So for the benefit of, of our audience, the transformation you use as a model reaction was the... Uh, conversion of boronic acid into triflates, right? 
That's one, yes. That's the second one. The first one is the boronic acids to aryl fluorides. Oh, okay. Yeah, to fluoroaryls, which are, right, these interesting transformation for MedCam and so on. Do you foresee the system having a real commercial, even commercial application in, in the future? How far are we for having a, a robust catalytic platform that can be used, you know, for, for a lot, a lot, or at least some useful transformations? Well, this is the this is the beautiful of this, right? That uh, it's very hard to do, to very hard to predict. It's it's unpredictable, and the fundamental chemistry is what it has. And and I wanna I, I wanna mention that I think it was Professor Fusner in a talk that he asked himself to and to the audience, uh, what is important? And and I think it's it, it really boils to the point like Buckwell Harwick amination when it was invented. I think they were using. Uh, stannane amines. That was the origin of a revolutionary kind of reaction for MedCamp for, for, for so, so many applications. But I'm pretty sure that if you had asked back in the day to these guys, uh, if, is this going to be... I think it depends on how many people like, is going to jump into this topic also that is going to help it do it better uh, if they are interested, if not, that the price of Bismuth, if it's really benign or if it's cheap now because it's a byproduct of another element that nobody wants to use. Um, I think there is a lot of factors. Uh, it's certainly the idea that we have is not to replace transition metals. So that is an important. So we want to mimic transition metals in terms of reactivity, but we want to provide reactivity that goes beyond the transition metals, that is orthogonal. And this triflates, for example, converting boronic acids to a triflate is a reaction that you cannot do with a transition metal. A triflate anion as a nucleophile is very is very strange for a transition metal, right? You, you usually put a triflate to generate bacon sites to not to interact with your metal center. Yeah, absolutely. You, you have right. it as a counter ion in, <laughs> yeah, in, exactly. in your complex, right? In some sort of metal cationic complex. Yeah. And then and then for some reason bismuth brings it into the coordination sphere and couples it to your aerial group. And that I think is conceptually new. And 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 and, and that is good because if I look at uh, the chemical space, particularly in the pharmaceutical development, you know, uh, I think it's fair to say that we are limiting the exploration of the experimental space because of our over-reliance on a relatively small number of extremely effective transformations, right? That are used over and over again. And, you know, uh, the, the bulk for crappling is, is one of those now, right? It's, it's maybe the, the newest of, of the bunch. Uh, but now, you know, if, if you pay, you Suzuki, yeah, you've got a lot of biaral systems there just because it's so effective, right? You can do it and it's so well understood. Uh, um, and, and, and this is also why some people are, are saying that there's very little innovation going on in organic synthesis, which is a bit of a disappointment to me. So, so uh, uh, do you think we need more innovation in, in, in the sort of synthetic tools? I, I certainly think so. And I am a big advocate that we are far from like being good at... Uh, so still, one of the bottlenecks in, in discovery is still the organic synthesis part. So we need to come up with more strategies that tolerate functional groups that are not limited by functional groups. Like they have a lot of nitrogen atoms, all these drugs. They have a lot of polar OH or NH bonds that interact with transition metals that will destroy them and so on. So we need to find out still a lot of technologies that are orthogonal and highly selective, I think. This is one of the research lines in my lab, really what I told you about. We have this pyrillium chemistry that what it allows you is to convert amino groups into a, a living group. 
We just designed this pyridine that grabs very selectively these amino groups and just by the addition of a nucleophile just kicks out pyridine and puts your nucleophile where you want it. And it's very selective. And these are very practical methods, right? We hope you're enjoying this episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life. Did you know you can register for a free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt? Stay tuned at the end of the episode for information on how to request it and also how to access interesting content recommendations from our guests. And now, back to our conversation. Uh, I'd like to go back to catalysis and, and touch on your work on the nickel catalyst systems. The tricky part of, of using nickel, despite the interest right, of, of the organometallic community, because you, know, you can avoid potentially some, the use of some precious metals and, and, and things like that, is is that it's not easy to handle, right? Um, it can be pyrophoric, you know. So you're actually found, you found a way to, uh, to have an air-stable uh, nickel catalyst that seemed to be working very well. Can you tell us the story there? So this story is also a little bit about it would be great if we could. I've been working with nickel cod for many years, uh, first in Spain in the Ruben, in Ruben Martin's lab and then in, in the Baron lab. And, and I always had this impression that nickel cod is the, only, is the only guy that is available. And I always wondered if somebody could do nickel cod air stable, that would be absolutely amazing. You know? Because it's a pain to go into the glove box. Not everyone in the world has access to the glove box. And on top of that, there is a rich chemistry of it. There are a lot of transformations that are only catalyzed by nickel cod. And I thought that that would, would, would be a game changer. And there has been uh, many people that looked into making air-stable precursors of nickel zero. Yeah? And, and the idea here was, to, to my student that was working in a, in a related, very low-valent nickel, formal nickel minus two uh, project, like we were always talking if we could make this and that and so on. And then by looking at the mechanism of a transformation completely unrelated to this, when he dismantled the whole setup after the filtration in one of the cases, uh, he didn't see that w when you remove the argon, everything goes to nickel black very rapidly and you can clearly see it. Yeah? And he realized that it was staying as red as your jumper. And he was like, well, that's weird and that's new, right? And, and I think here it was one of the key moments when you have the student that because we talked about the potential and he knew that all the background of, you know, he realized that maybe that was something important. So when he was washing a filter, <laughs> and that is, and that is the, I think the, the chemistry intuition that comes, that comes to, that comes to light. So serendipity brought you to this discovery. It, it brought me to this, but we already had the idea of, of kind of, if we could, right? But we are always obsessed with 18 electron. We always had the idea, it has to be an 18 electron because it's a novel configuration and, it, you know, and so on and so forth. But this guy now is a 16 electron, which they are all... <laughs> extremely air sensitive, but this guy is not. And that was like very puzzling to me. And we just, so he brought with a bile like one gram and a half here in my office, like, dude, no, I, I, it, this is crazy. So we started doing analysis and more analysis. And still, I must admit that still today, we don't understand it. <laughs> we don't understand it. So um, we have, we crystallized, I think five or six different ones. And it's always the same structure with a nickel, surrounded by three olefins that kind of wrap around the metal center. But when we try to do an NMR of it, it's never this. It's something else. And it's very strange, the behavior in solution, and, uh, but it's fascinating, right? Because 
We know by elemental analysis that we have three ligands and one nickel. That, that is clear. Uh, we can repeat this elemental analysis and it's always telling us the same. Three to one ratio. Now the question is if the arrangements, it, it, it could be that when you try to crystallize it, it this is the preferred conformation. But when you have it as a powder, uh, there is something else, you know, and and that's why we are now working in in and see whether really is this uh, trisolefin or it could be uh, something else, you know. Can you tell us about how it behaves? Is is it is it behaving very very similarly to the to the standard nickel code? What can you do with it? So what we can do in the first article, what we did is we have two st uh, steel bins, right? Um, the steel bins are the ligands and the steel bins are substituted at the position four. And at the, the very, the first generation, let's say it had CF3s and CF3s were the ones that, you know, we was rel relatively airstable, but when we would dissolve it in THF, complete destruction and nickel black immediately, unless you had a supporting phosphine in it. Like if you had an energy or a diamine, it would rapidly make the complex and that complex would be stable. But in spite of that, we could catalyze a lot of reactions that nickel cut uh, could catalyze in the same kind of level of reactivity. But we had a bunch that would not do anything. And then what we have that nickel cut doesn't have is a good platform to tune the electronics on these ligands that probably will affect not only the physical properties, but also the chemical properties. Because if you if you think about it, if you have three olefins and you add a diphosphine, two olefins will go, but the third one will stay. And this second one, the electronics on the steel bin can tune how fast or how not fast is going to dissociate from the metal center. And Lucas said, okay, so I'm going to start putting electron donating, electron withdrawing, different substituents, and so on. And then he found that this with this terbutyl, that it was the, the reactivity was extremely fast, the physical properties were incredibly high, so we could store it under air for at least a week. Then it starts getting, uh, we, don't, we don't have to forget that in theory, it's a 16 electron complex. So it's air stable, but it's better if you store it in the fridge uh, under, under air. Huh? Under air. It, it's interesting because you, you got there in a very original way, but then you started doing what seems like more traditional ligand design. And then you, you slowly improved your, your system, right? Yeah. By serendipity, we stumbled upon it and, and then we was like, okay, now we have a system and we have a platform that allows us to, to and we have a, a good way of making them, which is using the old Mulheim recipe from Gunther Wilke, the former director here, uh, try with aluminum salts and, and they just crash out. And yeah, so we licensed it and, and we just, when we saw that it could catalyze, now when we put these terbutyls, sorry, I forgot to mention, now when we replace these CF3s for these terbutyls, all those reactions that we could not catalyze, now they were catalyzed by this one because the electronics is not electron withdrawing, it's more electron donating and the COD ligand is a little bit of an, an electron donating ligand, so it resembles more to the reactivity of nickel cut. What's next in, in these lines of research we have been speaking about? You know, the bismuth, the nickel catalysis, or even the pyrillium salts. What, what, is, what is now your focus? In the pyrillium reagent uh, functional group uh, type of uh, stoichiometric chemistry, uh, organic synthesis, I would say, the idea is to push this chemistry to substrates that there is no other way to deaminate, let's say. Uh, and that that is one area that we are we are looking at now currently, and the bismuth uh, the the idea for the bismuth is to consolidate it. 
Um, so now we had the first three shots, right, in which we demonstrate that bismuth 1 and 3 uh, redox uh, catalysis and 3,5 is both possible. But we need to console. My idea, at least, is to consolidate this as a as a as a, an approach, right? The bismuth redox catalysis. Uh, we need to provide at least uh, as much as we can in these areas to be able to say, okay, this is this is a thing. It's not just a boutique uh, example. And I think providing more bismuth one three and bismuth three five redox platforms. I think it's a. I think it's uh, the, the way to go here. And then we started a new area on this bismuth. Within the bismuth, there is a, a new branch that is that is quite cool that I cannot comment on more, but it's also exploiting the redox chemistry of it. But completely new type of redox chemistry, I think, from my perspective. And I think it's very, very exciting. And I, I wish I could tell you more, but uh, it's still a little bit on the... Uh, like very fresh and very new, but that's why I'm talking very excited about it because it's very new and it's very interesting. And and the nickel chemistry, basically, I think I think is understanding what I just told you. These these strange behaviors, uh, because once we understand this, we can go. Uh, so maybe we have to take take a step back. Now we already put them out there; people can use them. But now I think we should. We have already structural evidence and so on. But now we should, I think, focus on understanding it and, and provide as much information to the to the users as possible about coordinations and, and things like that. And it makes sense based on all, all, all of our discussion today. You know, you're jumping between the, the application aspects and the fundamental understanding that will allow you actually to improve application. And then it's, it's, it's almost like your, your own research catalytic cycle, right? <laughs> that you need to, to keep, to keep, uh, to keep, uh, uh, to keep running exactly yeah it's amazing um uh, listen as, as we get to, to to the to the end of our of our, of our chat uh, um you know i want to touch on, on on one aspect that i typically always go at the end of my interviews and you mentioned um uh, a lot of a lot of times uh, uh you know while you were discussing your examples you know the input from from a lot of talent in your team. You know, you know, you you, you mentioned a lot of your students, PhDs, and postdocs, and so this this is this is really key. Um, and 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 I guess you're embracing your role as a as a team leader here, right? So how, how was for you this transition between being a being a being just being a scientist on the bench and and then uh, you know growing into this role of enabling other people to to deliver results and giving them ideas, but also leaving them the freedom to to explore right how how do you how do you handle that uh it's, it's quite complicated because um I, I i always say the same they hire you for because you're good in the fumehood and and solving some problems or something and and then they, it's like a crane takes you and puts you in an office and tells you here is this group and do just to start hiring people and it's like excuse me <laughs> how, how how did this happen <laughs> and um the idea for me at the very beginning, and it was an advice that I got, uh, I don't, uh, it was not to rush uh, to get the lab full. Just just take your time and get the right people. One important thing for me, at least when I started, was I need to be surrounded by people that know more than me. That is very difficult to, to, to go after these people, uh, especially for some that they want to come with you, that nobody knows you there is no safety net they might jump into a completely black hole and so and i was fortunate enough to to recruit uh, really talented people and that m made everything so the whole bismuth chemistry was uh, the intellectual plus the hard working and the motivation of like the the first the first guys especially the first the first 
two students, right? These two guys started this area point like out of the, with a with a boss that we had to learn everything all together, right? And that was quite it was very intense, but very very successful at the end. Uh, so I'm really grateful, and and these guys were really really key for for developing this. And then all the people that came came after the second generations are incredibly amazing also, and and they are keeping up the level very very high level. And and also in the nickel chemistry, yeah, the first PhD student realized about it and just bang it on its own with the help of a technician that we have here, very talented technician. They together they just did everything and and then they joined another master student and so on but and i'm really grateful that they jump into these completely bold ideas and, and and they contributed so much i mean it's it's great you've been fortunate right with meeting a lot of smart people and uh, you've been good in keeping keeping them with you and and you know supporting them in their endeavors and uh, you're probably also being good in um, applying the, the the good advice you have received right uh someone telling you you need to you need to hire people who are better than you and then and, and, you know you 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 working on this concept and actually making a strength out of it is 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 great and that's what leads me to my final in, in questions that now that you've I've gone through all this uh if you look back what would be one piece of advice that you would pass on to a young scientist who are not as advanced as you are now but they are just starting in their career just be passionate about what you do and try don't be afraid of going completely outside the box uh, outside your comfort zone um, you're gonna face areas of scientists that you didn't know before uh, and to do that make sure that you get the right like the good people and just treat them well right i mean uh, that's that's uh, that's all it is. At the end, this is a whole team. It's not an individual thing. And if you see the publications, there is. Uh, I'm not alone, right? Go after people that are that are motivated. This is the most important thing. And if you if the person is motivated, uh, it's mo- it's ten times better than knowing a little bit more. And try to not to be the person that knows the most. That's also another thing that helps me to motivated to come and learn every day. Because if you are the one that le- that knows the most here. I find it. What's the point of all this? I think you have to surround by yourself. You have to challenge yourself, right? Surround by yourself by extremely good people that have different, you know, expertises, and then we can put them together and do stuff. That that's that's the idea. I think. That was Dr. Joseph Cornelia group leader at the Max Planck Institute and one of the chemical and engineering users talented 12. Thanks for joining us for this season 2 episode of Bringing Chemistry to Life and keep an ear out for more. If you have enjoyed this conversation, you're sure to enjoy Dr. Cornelia's book, video, podcast and other content recommendations. Visit www.thermofisher.com bctl to access these recommendations and register for a free Bringing Chemistry to Life t-shirt. You can also find the URL in the episode notes on whatever app you're using for listening. Have a look. This episode was produced by Matt Ferris, Matthew Stock and Emma Jean Weinstein.